right. Nobody look at their watch. I know you're tempted just because I told you not to. A lot of you are like, yeah, don't do that. And I would actually shorten the message I was going to bring this morning, except for the fact that I feel like the Spirit of God wants to speak to us. And we don't need to rush it. I'm going to tell you a story this morning. It's a story that reveals the heart of God, and it's a story that reveals something of our heart. If you have your Bibles, turn them to the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah. The problem with the book of Jonah is that a lot of us think we know the story, but most people really don't. I mean, if you ask the typical person on the street, what is the book of Jonah about? They'll say, you know, it's about Jonah and a whale, and the whale's name was Monstro, and Jonah's running away from Geppetto because he wants to be a real boy, and there's something about a cricket, and then it gets fuzzy after that. Maybe we really don't know this story. There's no whale in the book of Jonah. In fact, the word whale never occurs there. It is instead the story about a runaway prophet named Jonah and God's heart for his runaway prophet and for an ungodly city. It starts with these words, chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord. Have you ever felt like running away from the Lord? Like, like maybe he called you somewhere or he called you to something and you're supposed to be doing what he called you to, but it's not going as well as you wanted it to or you didn't want it to, things are happening that you didn't want to happen and you get mad and you just felt like running away. Have you ever run away? When I was a little kid, we lived in Paris, Tennessee, and I remember being in, in this on one occasion for whatever reason. I don't even remember what happened and what precipitated it, but I decided I was going to run away. And so I, I couldn't even really write much, but I wrote on a little note, you know, I'm running away. I left it on my bed, and I went to go run out of the house, and I made it to the edge of our yard, and I hid behind our uh, mailbox. And then I got hungry. And I decided maybe this wasn't such a great idea. I was there for a few minutes, you know. And then I came back in thinking, you know, I could probably get back before my mom found the note. I walked in, and there was my mom. She was ironing, and she was praying in tongues. And when I saw her eyes, I realized this was a bad idea. (laughs) And then she wasn't speaking in tongues anymore. It was English, and I understood the words that were coming out of her mouth. And you know what? I always told that story from what it feels like from being the kid that ran away. I never really thought about what that felt like for her until I was on that side. The parent side of that hurts. Have you ever noticed that running away never works? It never works. It's never what it's cracked up to be. Have you noticed that? I mean, you know, one of our favorite things around here, and we can't do it during COVID, but, you know, we had these Christmas kids musicals you know and we have the little kids up here and they're doing the thing and we're all enjoying it you know and inevitably every year we have one kid that takes off running just a you know and whenever we do that Marlene will lean over to me and go we have a runner <laughs> you know I wonder if heaven does that sometimes I wonder if there's angels who are like oh, we, one of us who are like I don't want to do what God wants me to do. and we take off running and they go we have a runner I have a sense that there is someone here this morning who's a runner that you're running from God. I, I don't know who you are or why you're running, but I know you're here, and I know God is speaking to you 
right now. He sent me today with this, he has arrested this service with this message just for you. You don't have to run. And if you must run, run to him, not away from him. It's much safer in the end. I mean, think of how futile it is really to run from God. The, the psalmist said it this way in Psalm 139, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. You may be in a very dark place right now. And I don't know what's causing the darkness, and I don't know why you're there, but I know this, I've been there, and I can just tell you, even there, God is. You can't run far enough, you can't run fast enough to get away from God, because wherever you go, there he is. Running from God is never a good idea, even when you think you have a good reason. I mean, Jonah had a pretty good reason. He knew that he hated Nineveh, right? They were his enemies, their most wicked empire on the face of the earth, and he knew if he went and preached and they repented, God was going to forgive them. And before you judge him too quickly, remember two things. Number one, we're not that different, are we? We're, we're really good at loving people who love us, but loving people who hate us, not so good at that. Right? So we're not that different from John. Number two, like I said, the Assyrians were arguably the most evil empire ever on the face of the earth. This, this story of Jonah isn't a fairy tale. Okay, Nineveh was a real place. A few years ago, Marlene and I went to the British Museum, and in the British Museum, they have an Assyrian collection. Nineveh was the capital of Assyria, and they have an Assyrian collection. And, and, and when you go in there, the, there's a, an obelisk, a white obelisk, or it's actually a stela. You'll see a picture of it here. This is in the British Museum, and that stela there, which has laws written on it, that stood outside the gate to Nineveh uh, during Jonah's time. It was between Sennacherib's palace and Ishtar's temple. So that very thing, Jonah probably walked by that as he was going into Nineveh. They also have a picture, a carving of the Assyrian kings. And, and here's the next picture you're going to see. Is, is This is like the, the Assyrian king Sennacherib and others had this kind of carved of them. It's the head of the Assyrian king with the body, you know, of, of a, a lion. Some of them are a lion, some of them are an ox, and they have wings. It's basically a griffin. And that has nothing to do with my text today except that I always wanted a pet griffin. But I'm showing those to show you that Nineveh was a real place. This isn't, a, this isn't Camelot. This isn't Atlantis. This is a real city with real people, and God's heart was for them just like it was for his runaway prophets. Now, the, the book of John really has twin peaks, right, twin ideas. And if you're going to understand everything that God's saying in the book of Jonah, we're going to have to look at both of them. But for sake of time today, we're only going to look at the first one, and that's the personal one related to this runaway prophet. So here's what happens. The word of the Lord comes. I'll just tell you the story. The word of the Lord comes to Jonah, and he runs away. He goes down to Joppa. If you were with us on our first Israel trip, what was that, in 2011, we stayed in Joppa. And he goes down, and he gets a ticket to go the opposite way to Tarshish, and there's a great wind that comes up, and a great storm comes up. And in verse 5, it says, all the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God. Now, you know, what, what do you know about sailors as a general category? You know, as a general category, not the most 
devout people on the planet, right? I mean, that's why we have things like he cussed like a sailor. How, how many of you ever heard that saying or you ever said it or heard it? Okay, you know what I'm talking about. So maybe not the most devout, but here it is, big storm, and what are they doing? They're crying out to God. Because storms reveal who you really are. When you're going through suffering, you're going through trouble, you're going through a hard time, it tends to reveal who you really are and what you really believe. Storms reveal that deep down in our hearts, we all need God. No matter what you tell yourself, you know that deep down inside, there is a God and you need him. And storms bring that out of us. There's a story, Mark Twain He's a very quotable guy, you know. Mark Twain, not, not a godly guy, but a very quotable guy, and there's a difference. Very quotable guy. He said in one, he had a horrible situation in his life, and I think, I can't remember if it was his mother or his wife or his daughter. One of them was dying, and it scared him. It shook him, and here's what he wrote after the fact. He said, I prayed. I prayed like a coward. I prayed like a dog. And he was mad at himself. The reason he was so distressed is that Mark Twain was a skeptic and he had very worked out, very well worked out, strong beliefs against Christianity, strong doubts. But in the storm, he cried out to God. Like he couldn't help it. Like it was an involuntary muscle. It was like this involuntary reflex towards God. And skeptics will say, if there's skeptics here today, skeptics will say, well, so what? You know, people get in trouble, they get in pain. Of course, they just cry out. That doesn't prove there's a God. And it doesn't prove that there's a God. That's not what I'm saying. Tim Keller is really good on this. He says this involuntary reflex that people find in their heart when they go into darkness, when they're in a storm, and they cry out to God, it is not evidence for skeptics for the existence of God. It's actually evidence from God against the existence of skeptics. Do you mean to say that again? Okay, it, it, it's not, it, you know, the fact that we turn, we get into a storm and we cry out to God, it's not evidence for skeptics that the, the, uh, for the existence of God. It's actually evidence from God against the existence of true skeptics. You know what Romans 1 says? Romans 1 says nobody's a real skeptic. All of us have in this side, in, in our heart, we have this knowing that, yeah, there is a God. No matter what you tell your religion class or your philosophy 101 class or your intro to biology class, deep down in your heart, you know there is a God and you need him. That is why when you get into a storm, you say, help! Sure, because storms show us that we're dependent, contingent, fragile beings. And that's what happened here. And Jonah, he's down in the bottom of the ship, and he's asleep. And so the sailors come down, and they wake him up, and they're like, don't you care if we die? And they cast lots, and it falls to Jonah. And they're like, what did you do? And he had already told them he was running from God. I mean, at least Jonah is honest. That's the one thing I like about this cat. He is honest. He tells them he was running from God. And so he said, what do we do? And they said, he says, throw me overboard. And so they throw him overboard, and the storm stops. And then the sailors are terrified. They were scared during the storm, but now that they've thrown him over and it stops, they're terrified. They're great fear. And verse 17 says in the NIV that the Lord provided a great fish. The New King James says he prepared 
a great fish. Uh, the ESV and the New American Standard say appointed. Some, some, some translations say ordained. It's fascinating. It's a fascinating word because that same word in Hebrew is used in the ancient world to describe a king who appoints an ambassador. So we're not, we don't know, did God just create this fish special for this? Or did he pick and say, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm appointing you for this job? Which may have been a, you know, a pretty interesting discussion. Can you imagine? All right, fish, swallow, don't chew. <laughs> this is very important. It's a weird story. Now, the best way to see God's heart and what God's up to in the Jonah story is to contrast the words related to God and his actions and the words related to Jonah and his actions. If you just read through the book, the word related to God is the word great. And so from the very beginning, God says, I'm going to send you to a great city. The Lord sent a great wind. He made a great storm. The pagan sailors were converted through great fear. He sent a great fish. God is up to something great in this story. Over and over, if you, if, you, if you miss that, if you just read it through, you realize, if you just circle every time the word great occurs, you, you see God's doing something great. But with Jonah, the word is down. He goes down to Joppa. There's, he boards a ship going down to Tarshish. He goes down to the bottom of the ship to sleep. After he's thrown it overboard, he goes down into the stormy sea. And then, as we all know, he goes down into the fish. This is a case of how low can you go. And I think it's safe to say that when Jonah finds himself in the belly of a fish, he has hit bottom. And so the big idea, the first point of the book of Jonah is this. Even when you hit bottom, God is up to something great. It all depends on how you look at it. And the call is for you to quit running from him and run to him. In chapter 2 and verse 1, it says, from inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. Well, I guess so. I mean, why do, you think, why do you think Jonah prayed in the belly of the fish? Answer, what else is he going to do? There's nowhere left to run. Listen, when you run from God, you will eventually, sooner or later, run out of places to run. I mean, he had nowhere to go, and he had nothing else he could do, so he prayed. You know, you know what I think for us? A lot of times we have a hard time praying. Do you know why? It's because we have so many other things to do. We have so many options, so many screens we can turn on. We got iPhones and iPads and Netflix and Facebook and Twitter and news feeds and just about every stripe you can imaginable, uh, imagine to distract us. And so we have so many noises that we introduce into our lives and so we can avoid the truth. Because most people in our culture would rather face a screen than face the truth. That life on their terms isn't working. And so what do we do? We distract ourselves. We don't want to face the fact that all of the false gods and the idols that we have constructed are absolutely powerless to fulfill the deepest longings of our hearts. And so Jonah prays. And in verse 8, he, he, there's this great sentence in his prayer. I wish we could go through his prayer. It's a powerful prayer. But, but there's one sentence in his prayer, verse 8, that says, Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. This is an extraordinary sentence. Hang with it for just a second. It's a beautiful picture. That, that, that many of us, were, we're so clinging to these idols that God's trying to give us grace, but we're, we're holding on to these. Augustine put it this way. God's always trying to give us good gifts, but our hands are too full. 
And if they're too full, they're too full of the idols that we're trusting in. Things that we're looking to to make us okay. And it might be a good thing, but it's not an ultimate thing. And when we look to anything other than God to be what makes us okay, that's an idol. And if you're clinging to your idol, God's there wanting to give you grace, but your hands are too full, you don't even take it. One of the biggest idols in our culture, you know it's true, is mammon. It's money. Money's not a bad thing. Money's a good thing. I hope you make a lot of money and tithe. (laughs) But whenever you look to money to be the thing that makes you okay, Whenever you look to money to be the thing that during this season of COVID makes you go, okay, everything's okay. That's an idol. And God's trying to give you, I think God is trying to give us a lot of grace during COVID-19. But for many of us, we're not receiving it because we're clinging to the wrong things. You know what else is an idol? Politics. You know how I know? Threaten somebody's political situation and they get very angry. If we look to anybody, a politician, a political party, if we look to anything to make us okay, that's an idol. Jesus is the one who sits on the throne. If your Messiah is anybody else other than Jesus, we have a problem. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. And Jonah is all about the fact that running from God and clinging to idols is absolutely futile. It's worthless, but it's also about grace. In fact, the very next verse in his prayer, Jonah says, salvation comes from the Lord. This is pretty awesome. He's still in the belly of the fish. And from down there, he's saying, salvation comes from the Lord. Somebody I read this week said, this sentence is a summary of the entire Bible. Which is kind of interesting if you think about it. Just the summary, the summary statement, salvation comes from the, you don't save yourself. See, at the end of the day, the book of Jonah is not just about Jonah. It's pointing us to someone greater. See, there's a story about Jesus in Mark chapter 4. We don't have time to turn there. But there's all these parallels between this story about Jesus and Jonah. In this story, both Jesus and Jonah were in a boat. If you compare the two stories, Jesus and Jonah are in a boat. Both boats are overtaken by a storm. The description of the storms are almost identical. Both Jesus and Jonah are asleep in the boat. In both stories, the sailors wake up the sleeper and say, we're going to die. In both cases, there's a miraculous divine intervention to calm the storm in both stories the sailors are more terrified after the storm is calmed than they were in the storm almost identical stories with one difference in Jonah 1 verse 12 basically Jonah says throw me overboard if I die you will live so they threw them him into the sea which doesn't happen in the Jesus story in Mark or does it See, I think Mark is writing the story with language deliberately reminiscent of Jonah to suggest that if you look at the rest of the Jesus story throughout the rest of Mark, you will see Jesus does do the same thing as Jonah. In Matthew 12, verse 41, Jesus says, No, now one greater than Jonah is here, meaning I'm the true Jonah. 
Luke eleven twenty nine. 29, Jesus said, There's a wicked, this is a wicked generation. It asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. And what was that? The sign of Jonah? When Jonah was sacrificed and thrown into the storm, the storm ceased for everybody else, but he went into the belly of a great fish for three days, and then he was spit out. Read the book of Mark, and Jesus was sacrificed. He sacrificed himself by submitting to the storm of the cross for our sin, the perfect storm of sin and death, so that we might live. He went into the belly of the grave for three days, and then he emerged triumphant over death and hell and the grave and every storm you could possibly ever face. Here's the deal. If you know that he didn't abandon you during the perfect storm, what in the world makes you think he would abandon you in the storm you're in right now? Because we are in a storm right now. Our country, our city is in a storm right now. But if Jesus didn't abandon us then, he won't abandon us now. And I know many of you are facing a, a storm in your own life. And for some of you, it's a storm you did not choose. For others of you, it's a storm that happened because you're running away from God. And if the story of Jonah teaches us anything, it's that when you get to the bottom, God is there. And he's up to something great. But that's not the end of the story. In chapter 2, verse 10, it says, And the Lord commanded the fish. This is after he's prayed. He's turned back to God. The Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Now, this is every middle school boy's favorite verse of the Bible. Because I don't know what it is, you know, when our kids were young, we had to make a rule. No talking about vomit at the dinner table. What happened at school today? Oh, man, this dude chucked everywhere. It's awesome. John Arberg wrote an article on this, and this is what he wrote. The whale had a protein spill. Tossed his cookies, lost his lunch, launched the food shuttle, took a ride on the regurgitron. And so Jonah ends up on land covered in shrimp cocktail, nasty seaweed, seaweed in his hair, half-digested sushi in his ears. Chapter 3, verse 1, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to the, it the message I give you. Verse 3. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. I guess so. He's motivated now. And he goes there and he just preaches judgment. Okay, this is, this is fascinating to me. There's no grace in his message. No four spiritual laws. No, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. No, no, here's two ways to live. No, just judgment. Forty days and you guys are toast. That's what he says. Well, I mean, that's, yeah, in Hebrew it says toast. You're to no, it doesn't say toast. It just says you got forty days and it's over. And I'm going to have a front row seat to see you grilled. And then the unthinkable happens. Nineveh, which is as wicked as any city in the history of the earth, repents. All of them, from the greatest to the youngest. And, and, and chapter 3 and verse 5 of Jonah says this, The Ninevites believed God. Oh, man, listen guys. Those four little words ought to make you never, ever, ever again despair about the future of our nation. Because if the Ninevites can believe God, if Nineveh can repent and turn to God, America can do the same thing. This is the capital 
capital city of the most wicked empire in the history of the earth. Man, if you, if you read that sentence and you believe the Bible, you can't despair anymore. The Ninevites believed God. And there's a huge temptation for us to despair today. I mean, if you're anything at all like me, and that's kind of scary, but if you are anything at all like me, you tried, you tried to watch the debate on Tuesday night. You tried? I tried. And, and wherever you stand, I, I'm sure you probably agree with me when I say probably not the finest hour in the history of our nation. As far as debate goes, if you call that a debate, I don't know. And so you know what the temptation is? Oh, no. But you know what? I'm not going to lose hope in our country because you know why? The Ninevites believed God. And look at verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they had repented, how they had turned, how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion. And he did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. Oh my, if God had compassion on the Ninevites, if we turn to him, he'll have compassion on us. Listen, repentance touches the heart of God. I mean, we're going to say more about this next week when we finish the rest of the book of Jonah and we talk about coming back to God as a nation and our role for that. But for now, I want to speak to the person who's running away. I want to speak to the individual who's here and you're, on your, you're trying to run away from God or the call of God on your life or wherever God has placed you and you're trying to run. And I want you to hear this. Repentance touches the heart of God. He is inviting you like Jonah. It's not too late. I mean, if you want the definition of feeling like it's too late, just imagine being thrown into a stormy sea and you sink down to the bottom and you're swallowed by a great fish. That feels like a little bit tardy. It feels like a little bit late to repent. It's not too late. So he goes, he repents, he goes, he does what God tells him to do, he preaches, the whole, the whole city, all Nineveh, repents and turns to God. This is the most successful citywide campaign in the history of the world everybody turns to God so you would think Jonah's super happy right wrong verse 1 of chapter 4 but Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry have you ever been angry with God he prayed to the Lord oh Lord is this not what I said when I was still at home? I told you this was going to happen. That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O oh Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. Jonah asked God to take his life. He prays the suicide prayer. He, he's in such a dark place, he doesn't want to go on. And look, there's more to this story. We'll talk about it next week. But for now, I wonder, I wonder if there's someone here today like Jonah who's feeling this right now. Like, you don't want to go on. 
that's you, you're not alone. You are not, and, and Jonah was not the only friend of God who ever prayed that prayer. Moses, in, in Numbers chapter 11, prayed to God. He said, God, if you care about me at all, you'll take my life and not make me see my own downfall. Numbers chapter 11, verse 15, you can look it up. Elijah, 1 Kings 19, verse 4, after he, he's called fire down from heaven. And Jezebel's after him now. He runs to a cave and says, just kill me, God, because I'm no better than my ancestors. Or take the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 1, verses 8 and 9. He said, we don't want you to be ignorant. When we were that, we despaired even of life. So look at that. We got the greatest leader of all time, Moses, with the greatest prophet of all time, Elijah, with the greatest evangelist of all time, Jonah, and the greatest apostle of all time, Paul. And they all got to a place where they did not want to go on. Even our Lord Jesus, as shocking as this verse I'm about to read to you is, in his humanity, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Mark 14, verse 34, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Jesus said that. And then he goes on, verse 36, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he submits to the will of the Father. So if you're here today and, 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 you're, and you're the runaway, and you're saying, I, I just don't know if I can go on, I just don't know if I want to go on, Jesus understands how you feel. In fact, Hebrews says this about that, Hebrews 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. You know what that means when it says he's been tempted in every way? He knows what you're feeling. He knows what it feels like to feel like you want to quit. He was tempted to run, but he didn't. And you know what that means now? Because he didn't run, we can uh, approach the throne of grace and find help in time of need. Because he didn't quit. 